welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Michael Johnston and I'm joined today by my colleague James Kirstead and by Professor Kendall Clements from the School of Biological Science at Auckland University. And we're here today to talk about science and in particular science education and some of the directions it's being taken. We can talk a bit about the school curriculum but also about what's happening at the university itself. So welcome to the podcast, Kendall. Uh, perhaps you'd like to open up by telling us what's been happening in science education at Auckland University of late. Well, I think it's, well, thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, I listened to your podcast with Melissa Darby last week, and I think she's going to be a really hard act to follow. Um, but in fact, I think we're going to touch on some of the same issues around how we construct curricula and ensuring that students are actually getting what they require from the curriculum. So I think what we're seeing in both secondary and tertiary curricula, science curricula, are very similar phenomena. We've gone from under the Mana Orite policy, which Chris Hipkins signed in 2020, we've seen an incorporation of initially Mātauranga Māori uh, into the science curriculum. I want to say at the outset, I've got absolutely no problem whatsoever with Mātauranga Māori being taught at either university or in schools. In fact, I think it should be taught. I, I think I think all New Zealanders should have a working understanding of, of what it is and the richness of the knowledge of, of various kinds. But as you, Michael, pointed out, Mātauranga Māori is a, is a mix of the, the sacred or the spiritual and the secular. And if you try and just say, well, now we, we're going to insert this into science, which of course is based entirely on objective reality, then you potentially have a problem. So I don't really think we need to focus too much on Mātauranga Māori at all, because I don't think the problem lies with Mātauranga Māori. Mātauranga Māori contains a lot of verifiable, empirical information that is of use to people. So I've got no wish to appear to be criticising that at all. I suppose However, it also has um, elements that, that aren't even in the, in the game of producing empirical science, right? Things like songs and prayers. And I think the Royal Society's definition of Mātauranga Māori includes those cultural elements. So there it's very clear, I think, that they are just sort of part of our cultural heritage, which we need to know about and students should know about, but they're not really in the same box as empirical science. Well, sure. My approach, you know, I, I, one of the things I teach is evolutionary biology. And, you know, it's pretty well known that, that there are a number of people about of various religious faiths who believe in special creation. Yes. So they, they, don't, they don't believe in evolution. I don't think it's, appropriate for me to get up in class and start going on about saying this is all nonsense i don't i don't think that benefits anybody but neither uh, can you insert young earth creationism in a course uh, which is scientifically based and about evolutionary biology precisely and that's the approach i've taken in the past but i can't do that if i'm told that we have to teach it in science class that's right so can you be more specific about the issues that you're facing at the moment as a, a science academic in terms of what's happening at Auckland University and, and how the science curriculum 
is being challenged by some of these extra scientific ideas? It's uncertain at the moment precisely how it's going to look. So the faculty uh, or the university is in the process of instituting compulsory stage one Waipapa Tomiraro courses into each faculty. What what does that mean for the listeners, please? Well, that's that's the name of the the, the name that uh, was gifted to the university. That, that that's our Maori name. I see. And what what's so, the purpose of these courses? The purpose of these courses, more broad, I'm probably not the right one to be asking that, uh, answering that. The purpose broadly is, I think, to give students an understanding of mātauranga Māori, of things like tikanga, of, uh, to some extent, tatariti, uh, and so on. So it's uh, one could see it in that sense as, as, as almost civics applied to New Zealand. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to steelman the position at the moment. Yes. If you can't tell. <laughs> so, and, you know, I don't have a problem with that so much. It's really the way it's now being framed. And we've seen a switch, and I think you, you've noticed this too. In recent times, the advice that the um, ministry is getting from people like the uh, Science Learning Hub, they've shifted from talking about inserting Mātauranga Māori concepts into science to framing, to framing the curriculum in terms of knowledge systems. Yes, and this is where, in my view, we sort of depart from Mātauranga Māori and start needing to look into these philosophical and ideological ideas that have really emerged through particularly educational theory. Now, I'm not in the Faculty of Education. I'm in the Faculty of Science. All right. So just, just to be clear, so the move seems to be that in the past, maybe over the past couple of years, the effort has been to say, Mataranga Maori can actually compete with science or complement science, and we're going to put some of it in, in the science curriculum for that reason. So they've moved from that position to something more like, no, 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 these things are just completely different. Mataranga Maori is its own thing. Science is its own thing. But they're actually, we should look at them as two different systems of knowledge. Is that what's going on? Correct. Leaving me wondering why we're teaching knowledge systems in science class. Right. Because science, we could accept is a knowledge system, and as scientists, you and I might agree that it has some special properties as a knowledge system, in particular the, I would say, the techniques that have been developed over many centuries to rigorously test theories. But also underlying science is a commitment to there being an objective reality, a, a way things are. And of course, we recognise as scientists that we have very imperfect access to that reality, which is why we generate theories that are consistent with evidence, but we always stand ready to, to amend and, and, and overturn them when the evidence points to that. Okay, but I mean, I suppose they might say something like, well, you know, there's a certain set of procedures and practices that have emerged, that, you know, that did emerge in early modern Europe, and that's kind of the Western way of doing science, and why not be more open-minded? Maybe there are other ways of doing science and approaching knowledge that use, um, you know, indigenous tradition. So what, what's wrong with that? Well, nothing's wrong with that, as Kendall has said. It's, it, it's just not the same thing as science. And if you're running a science degree, 
then presumably what you want people to study is science. But the point that I'm making alongside that is that at a deeper level, there are different knowledge systems and some of them acknowledge the existence of an objective reality, as science does, uh, and others don't. And so when we look at the way in which uh, uh, educational curricula in general are constructed, especially at the school level, we see a strong influence of social constructivism. Now, that, according to that philosophy, there is no such thing as objective reality. Different realities are constructed in different social groups depending on the characteristics of the people in those groups. And I would say that that is incompatible with a science worldview. What, 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 what are your thoughts on that, Kendall? I totally agree. I, I was just reading, um, uh, I mean, I can read you a couple of quotes if you want, but Michael Matthews, uh, who's, who uh, was in the Faculty of Education at my university in the 1990s, but left largely because of the uh, constructivism. In, in, perhaps, Michael, have we defined constructivism? Well, I think constructivism can be defined quite broadly, but social constructivism in particular is the idea that knowledge is constructed socially rather than gleaned from reality, as it were. So it denies the idea that there is a single objective reality at all and that reality is dependent on your viewpoint. Sure. And a strong version of constructivism in that sense might even equate something like belief with, say, verified knowledge or empirical. Well, ultimately, there isn't any difference between those two things under a, as you say, strong definition of social constructivism, because there is no such thing as justifying belief with evidence as such, because it depends on your viewpoint. So if everything is relative to viewpoint, then the difference between objective knowledge and belief has collapsed entirely. Yeah, and, and I, I just can't see how science is compatible within this framework. Well, well I, I would agree that it isn't. And so we're, we're running into all sorts of problems if we think that we can introduce uh, a social constructivist approach to teaching science. It's, it's, it's oil and water. So both at secondary level, and, and, and I'm, I'm getting this from a recent webinar from the Science Learning Hub, and in our university curricula, we are told that different knowledge systems have equal validity. Now that's a you know that's a viewpoint, but can can I read you a quote from this book that I've just discovered that was written by Paul Bogosian, not the Bogosian. <laughs> I'm very quick to point out Paul Bogosian. This is a 2006 book called Fear of Knowledge Against Relativism and Constructivism. Yeah, go ahead, this, please. This is from the introduction. He says equal validity then is a doctrine of considerable significance and not just within the confines of the ivory tower. If the vast numbers of scholars in the humanities and social sciences who subscribe to it are right, we're not merely making a philosophical mistake of interest to a small number of specialists in the theory of knowledge. We have fundamentally misconceived the principles by which society ought to be organized. There is more than the usual urgency then to the question whether they are right. Yeah. And he, he's, he's 
obviously taking the point that he doesn't agree with that position, but nonetheless, partly because we are seeing, um, I guess, naturally, uh, faculties of education having an influence over education. In, in, at my university, the people who are running what we call the curriculum framework transformation are both from the faculty of education and uh, there are other people involved as well. So we're kind of getting the, the, um, the, the, the sort of the epistemic framing for the way we go about teaching curricula from them rather than from science itself. And I don't know that people have thought through carefully enough how this is going to impact on us. I mean, we early discussed the issues of things like special creation and so on. Yeah. So do, do you think that um, the people who take this view, do they think that all knowledge is constructed or do they think that Maturanga Maori, for example, um, has other ways of getting to empirical knowledge? Because it seems to me in using the word knowledge, they seem to be kind of conceding something, which is that we all do ultimately want to have some knowledge of the empirical world. So are they sometimes claiming that actually there's an alternative way of getting to the truth about the empirical world? Is that one element of it still? Well, if that was the case, you'd expect them to focus on epistemology, which is the way we go about constructing knowledge. And that's precisely what I'm not seeing in any of this. Um, I mean, you've both seen some of the advice that's been going to the Ministry of Education about NCEA curricula. Uh, for, correct me if I'm wrong, but I haven't seen anything on epistemology of Mātauranga Māori, and I'm not sure there's even a lot of consensus on what that might be. I'm not, again, I'm stressed, I'm not criticising Mātauranga Māori here. No, and, and none of us are experts on it, and so, so we should sure. probably refrain from saying too much about its epistemology, but I think you had it right at the outset when you said that it, it doesn't distinguish the the sacred from the material, as it were. And and we could go back several hundred years in, in Europe and find a similar situation before the Cartesian period when, when people didn't differentiate those things. And one of the things that I've argued a number of times is that we couldn't have science as we conceive it now while that was the case, partly because uh, certain claims would be insulated from scientific testing partly because there was a religious authority that might actually go after you if you if you said anything against the sacred doctrine, and partly because I think religious worldviews have internalised a reluctance to question the, 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 the sacred tenets. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, and I'm, I'm unsure whether this debate, if you want to call it a debate, is about means or ends or both. I mean, are we disagreeing about what we want to achieve in terms of education? Are we disagreeing about how we go about educating people? Or is it somehow both? But I think there's a real lack of clarity in what we're trying to do. I mean, my, my interest really is just having the capacity to teach science and to um, ensure that as a society in New Zealand, I guess, we have a way of de determining which ideas are better than others. And yeah. this is the Jonathan Rausch point of, of we have to agree on a common set of facts. And if you can't do that before you start getting into sort of values and you get into conversa uh, conversations about, say, management and policies and so on, if we can't agree on a common set of facts, I don't even know how we get started 
talking about how we move forward. Yeah, and it's also made difficult if uh, criticising certain points of view is off the table or, or seen as unacceptable. And, and I think you've experienced some of that. Yeah, you, you I, I can see why you could might, might think that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, I think the... I mean, this is part of the problem. If 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 one comes up with a, a, a let's say a spiritual concept, we don't we don't really uh, want to criticize somebody's spirituality. I mean, that's that's not that's not something that we should be doing. No, um, and it's one of the reasons why we have a secular education system so that people can have their sacred beliefs, but people can have different sacred beliefs and take part in the same education system that gives them the same. Uh, views in terms of more objective approaches to, to knowledge construction? Sure. I think the real problem is when you're embedded in a system that says these different views must be considered to be equivalent. And I, I, I don't know if people actually thought through what they meant by that. Yeah. Equivalent in terms of what? Well, how do you even compare them if you if you assume that these are actually completely different systems of knowledge and they presumably have different sort of criteria for knowledge? Then what does it even mean to say they're equivalent? Because surely they're just completely incommensurate. Well, you you might mean of equivalent value, uh, which would be a defensible position if you were talking about what gave people a sense of belonging or a sense of place in the world. Uh, it's another matter if you say which system of knowledge will give rise to technology that works most effectively. That's, that's a different question, and uh, that's one that you could test more empirically. So, but, you know, yeah. It, but then it would seem to be the case that they're actually all um, both of these systems would then be competing towards achieving empirical knowledge, and you'd have to use a common framework for them both, right? So it just seems really hard to think about once you once you start saying things that are that radical as there are two different systems of knowledge rather than actually all of us uh, try and reach knowledge of the empirical world in a similar way, or at least the the methods by which we reach the truth about the empirical world, there the, the reliable ones are common to all, to all different cultures. Because otherwise it seems very strange that you seem to be saying something like in some cultures, you know, they have a different mathematics or, or you know, um, demonstrable truth is different. You know, eyewitness reports aren't as valuable and that just seems very implausible. It seems implausible, and yet those claims just like that have been made. Uh, some from your home country, actually, Canada, they, they have uh, a view of mathematics that is just like that, and if you insist on a correct answer to a mathematics problem, then that is potentially culturally insensitive. The, these are, the, this claim has been made, and you will see shades of that in New Zealand's common practice model for numeracy. This is... Uh, a framework that teachers are supposed to use in our schools to approach mathematics. And it seems to me a catastrophic position to take uh, for something like mathematics. That common practice model, I had a look at that. And if anybody, if anybody is in any doubt that postmodernist ideology is being infused into our secondary school curriculum, just go and have a look at that. Yes, indeed. The numeracy one in particular. I think the literacy one is also incoherent, but for slightly different reasons. It's the numeracy one where you really see that postmodern uh, stain. So just, just to be very clear, 
the a draft structure for the Faculty of Science Waipapa Tomataro course wasn't just talking about Mātauranga Māori and science as different knowledge systems. They also included things like the social sciences and you know, other forms of Indigenous knowledge and so on. And so th 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 this is th this is where the, I mean, I, 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 that's epistemic relativism, I guess, correct? Well, yes. I mean, I, I think for the for the benefit of listeners, we should make clear what we mean by epistemic. So I would say, well, epistemology is the study of knowledge systems and uh, the epistemic methods of a knowledge system are the, are the ways in which it goes about establishing the knowledge within that system. So in science, we, we run experiments and uh, we test theories and that that's the epistemic uh, system of science. Now, underneath that is ontology. So that that's theories about the way things are, even beyond what people know, at the at the sort of raw ground of being, and that's even at that level. I think there is a disagreement here, and that that comes back to that question of whether, uh, if as a, a, a as we understand in science, there is an objective reality, even though we don't have direct access to it or whether there is no objective reality at all, and all you have is different knowledge systems which are ultimately incomparable. In which if case, any, it's very difficult for people to talk across those divides, right? That's right. Well, it is, and, and in science, I mean, um, James, you're certainly uh, in, in the humanities, yeah. and I, I, I think uh, studies like uh, history, are scientific in many respects. Yep. But I think if we look at some of the social sciences and we look at the sorts of things that they do, it can be quite different in terms of uh, how you might judge disciplinary standards. Well, well that, that's what I was going to pick up, actually, because it seems kind of true on the surface to say something like there's different approaches in the university. There's different approaches in different academic fields. So in physics and math, you might use certain methodologies and in engineering, you might use certain types of mathematics that you don't use in social science, you know, di different statistical tests and things like that. And obviously in the humanities, it might be based more on texts. In history, it might be, might be based on texts and archaeology, etc. So there are different methods, but I think that's actually a different claim. That's sort of like a trivial, trivially true claim that there is methodological pluralism in academia, that, you know, we focus on slightly different things and therefore we use slightly different methods. That's distinct from a separate claim, which seems to be the more radical one and maybe is the one that's being made increasingly in New Zealand educational circles, and that is that these reflect kind of completely different approaches to the truth. And I'm not sure if I agree with that because, uh, and I actually say this to students a lot, like actually people talk a lot about how the humanities are different from the sciences and they're fuzzier. And I sort of don't entirely agree because I think when I'm, training students to write essays about Homer, for example, what they're really, what I'm training them to do is really to um, be able to support their claims in a kind of empirical manner. Yeah. And the, the empirical data that's relevant there is the text of Homer. So you say, you know, Homer is always talking about love, or, you know, he's very often talking about love, whatever the claim is in the essay. And then what you're trained to do is to look for quotations where he's talking about love, and maybe compare them with how much Virgil talks about love, or whatever, you know, whatever your subject is. So I think fundamentally beneath, so you're not going to really use statistics. So you might actually do a statistical study of how, how much words for, for love are, are being used. But the point is you're going to have different methodologies. 
But that doesn't mean that fundamentally, deep down, there's a difference in the way that humans approach knowledge in that field. I think it's it, the difference lies in the subject matter rather than... So you could say in history or, or in the study of Homo, you can take a scientific attitude. In some ways, you have a disadvantage compared with physical scientists because you can't run experiments and experiments are a, a kind yep. of gold standard way of testing theories. Well, that, that, that's uh, a good it, point. And, and the poor yeah. historians don't have the luxury of being able to do that. that that's right. Although, although there is actually a growing field nowadays of sort of sort of statistically informed historians yes. who look for what they call natural experiments. So you can yeah. do things like you can look at you know Switzerland and look at the cantons that became Protestant after a certain date and the cantons that became Catholic and you try and control for, di for differences that do exist, but the idea is you get similar places with similar culture, and you, you look at various outcomes depending on, you know, you can think of it as a treatment rather they go, if they go Protestant rather than Catholic. So there are ways of teasing it out, but I think it, it is a good point that we can't do kind of experiments in the lab with past humans. That doesn't work. But, but I, I take your point yeah. that you can still have a scientific attitude, which is to say yeah. Homer meant something. Yeah. We don't know quite what it was, but we're going to yeah. use the evidence that we have at our disposal to, ta to, to theorize about that and produce the theory that seems most consistent with that evidence. That's exactly right, yeah. So what about ideology, uh, things like critical theory? How, how, how do you see that playing out in the humanities and the sciences? Well, that's a big question. I mean, I actually think so. I mean, I have colleagues who are, I would say, sort of lightly into critical theory or postmodernism. And personally, I sort of, I don't agree with that aspect of their work. But I, I have some colleagues who are basically what I see as really good scholars anyway, because they're doing all the things we've just been discussing. They're looking for evidence in Greek texts, and they're trying to look around at other texts and compare them in a kind of mature, reasonable way. And then often, you know, at the beginning or the end of the paper, they'll tack on a theoretical bit, which I find less persuasive. So I think that kind of th stuff I will defend because most of it is is just good work. You know, it's good scholarship. Um, I think it's more of a problem when you really deep down start to believe this stuff and you believe that kind of what you feel will trump the evidence that other people can bring to bear. And, you know, just asserting something is the case from your perspective is enough to kind of overwhelm empirical argument. I think that's when it becomes very problematic because actually, like, it's sort of true that, you, that it's important to um, be aware of your own perspective. But the reason that it's true isn't because you should lean into your perspective and not look around for actual evidence. The reason it's, it's, it's important to bear in mind that you have a particular perspective is precisely so that you can control for it and that you can sort of abstract away from it and be aware that, yes, I'm a Canadian, so I'm going to be privileged, I'm going to be, um, well, maybe privileged too, I'm going to be biased towards that, but I'm actually going to put that aside and I'm going to collect evidence from all these different sources. That's right, and I, I see science as a training in doing that uh, par excellence. It's, it's kind of the best way that I know of to try to distance yourself from your feelings about something, from your opinions about something, and to try to rigorously focus on evidence and reason. And that is not an easy thing for human beings to do. It's a very difficult thing, and we forget that at our peril, I think. It's, I mean, I think you made the point in, in one, one of the podcasts you did, Michael, that it's counterintuitive. That's right. I think it is because we have a lot of biases and, you know, James has just mentioned one that we like groups that we belong to and so we're going to try to, well, we're going to tend to be biased towards the interests of those groups. 
Whereas science tries to take a more universal view, what, what is true everywhere and always, rather than what's only true for one group of people or another. Yep. And so I think in that, in that respect, a scientific training is a good way to overcome these biases, or at least to have some tools to overcome them. And I think even professional scientists don't succeed in that all of the time by any means. And I think that this is why it's particularly problematic when we have disciplines or departments that are actually, they actually seem to be built around political communities or, or they've, they've increasingly drifted towards being um, communities of political view or communities of viewpoint rather than groups of people trying to get to the truth about a certain topic like biology. Um, and I know that there's a movement in the social sciences and psychology especially to have more uh, what they call advers adversarial collaborations. That is, you run an experiment and you write up your paper uh, with people who you know disagree with you on that topic. And the point of that is precisely to kind of utilize this known tendency of humans to um, cherry pick evidence that's on their own side or be more attentive to evidence that's on their on their own side. So I think, so one of the things which has gone wrong, I think with the departments of, let's say gender studies or, or various studies, uh, departments of race in the US, isn't that those aren't good things to study. I think they're extremely important things to study. It's more that the, um, the research has been dominated by one part of the question, by one, by one way of looking at it, right? So if there were departments of, let's say sex and gender studies, which had cultural theorists and sociologists and people who look at, you know, the use of uh, gender and Virgil and Jane Austen. Maybe some biologists even. And, and, and at the same time, if they had some evolutionary biologists, then I think, you know, they would counteract one another and hopefully through time they would moderate one another and they would get closer to the truth in that I, way. I actually suspect that's uh, unduly optimistic because I think there is a, a fundamental incompatibility between scientific objectivism, which says that there is a, a reality that we're driving towards and an ontological position that says that all of that's nonsense. And there, well, I mean, there, I guess there what, are just what many I'm, different ways yeah, of seeing things. Yeah, what I'm things. saying, it, it'll only work if everybody there is, you know, down with the idea that there is an objective reality. So and, and that would make those at least various most of the time. studies yeah. disciplines completely different than they are. Uh, because well, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think, as I say, you can still have people using different methods. I mean, if, if it's only to the extent that there is a cultural aspect to gender. There, there is some extent to which, you know, acting yes. as men and women is, is culturally determined. So I don't have a problem with some kind of research institute or department where there are people who are more inclined to that way of seeing things and are doing it by uh, studies of gender in literary works or artistic representations. I don't, have, I don't have a problem with that as long as they're doing that in a, in a reasonable way, in an empirical way. And I think that's possible. And then the only thing is you'd have to want to, you'd want to counterbalance them with people who are looking at the biological aspect and the, the, the nature aspect. Anyway, what, what do you think about all, all this, Kendall? I mean, because you also have views on this topic. I think I'd like to point out at this stage that science at the moment is probably not in a very good place. There was an article recently published in The Spectator by Matt Ridley, who's an evolutionary biologist, and he was also in the House of Lords, on the replication crisis, particularly in fields like uh, psychology uh, and issues with data fabrication by some environmental scientists and so on. And these are very concerning and they're partly driven by, I think, uh, particularly in early career scientists, um, 
a feeling of sort of overwhelming pressure to stand out among their peers. To publish at all costs and to and to get yeah. their name out there and with some new theory or new idea. Yeah, sure. And and the other the other thing that I think propels some of these people, which leads me back in a loop to where I thought James was going to go a little bit earlier in the conversation, is the word activism. That I think increasing numbers of scientists see themselves as activists. And they might be, for example, environmental activists. And there's nothing wrong with that in itself. But for example, one of the I'm not going to go into the details, but one of the studies that was found to have been fabricated and has been widely publicized involved the effect of microplastics on larval fish. This is a study done in the Baltic. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the person doing this, you know, you, you can understand why they would be motivated to find an effect, right? Because we want to try and say, well, we don't want to be putting microplastics into the environment. I think sure. we can probably agree that whether, whether they affect the, the larvae of Baltic fish or not, they're an undesirable thing to have in the ocean. Exactly. So, however, the data were fabricated mm. and it got published in a high profile journal and this led to all sorts of drama. Um, and we really can't have that. I mean, this is, I mean, listening to what's going on in the States at the moment, I think trust in science is at a very low ebb, partly because of um, statements that came out during the early part of COVID over things like vaccine efficacy. I, I don't mean vaccines don't work. I just mean that people thinking or people leading other people to believe if you take the vaccine, you will not get COVID rather yeah. than if you take the vaccine, it, it will greatly reduce your chance of mortality. Well, in other words, the message was politically based rather than scientifically based. Correct. And that this is this idea of kind of I, I don't think you can do both. And I, I actually a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had a, a session with some third year students um, for a capstone paper where we were split up into groups and each of us would talk to a table of, of, of students. And they asked me, you know, what what I thought was the most important ethical principle as a scientist and I th I said a commitment to the truth right I think any scientist with their salt would say that and and of course you know there are subsidiary ethical questions if you're doing research on human beings or or any animal or some part of the environment there are ethical considerations with how you treat your your experimental participants as it were but the ultimate commitment of a scientist must be to truth so if we're inserting other ways of knowing or knowledge systems, whatever you want to call it, into the science curriculum, what are we trying to achieve? Are we trying to teach science better? Are we trying to make science easier to understand? There are certainly arguments along those lines. I'm not particularly convinced by that. No, and actually if you look at the, the draft science curriculum that came out uh, by leak to the media a, a couple of months ago, you will see an explicit commitment to activism. It, it says right up front that the reason to be teaching kids silent science is is so that they will take action. Yeah, well, I think that's precisely the opposite of what we really want to be teaching people. And that's not 
so that we have kids who don't care about the environment, pollution, uh, and, and all of those sorts of things, but rather that, I, as, I, as I said before, we have to start out by agreeing on a common set of facts. And, and so we have to all, as a, members of a democratic society, agree on how we establish those facts. And if we're going to go around saying that different knowledge systems are all equally valid in a epistemological sense, in other words, in the way that they create knowledge, mm. then what do we do when we've got one knowledge system saying A and another knowledge system saying B? Well, we've seen that happen before during the Middle Ages and the Renaissance in, in Europe where uh, the early scientists like Galileo came up against the fundamentalist Christian doctrine of the time and what happened was often violence or threats of violence. Yeah, well, you end up in a Foucauldian universe where um, if if the only way, if, if all views are, are, are more or less equal because they're all culturally or socially constructed, then there is only one way to solve those and that's yep. by exercising power. Right. Yep. I think there's an even stronger point though. It's, it's not just in my view that we all have to band together and agree on how we produce knowledge or how we arrive at knowledge because that's sort of better for society. Although I think that's very true and it's very important. It's more that some ways of approaching knowledge and trying to get to knowledge are just, they just work better. They, they just help us get to accurate and true knowledge more effectively than others. And that ultimately is the justification of doing it one way rather than another. And I think that the way that you get to the truth more effectively, it's, it's the same for all people. I mean, it's the, the physical universe is the same for all of us. And, the, and these methods are powerful wherever you use them. And that's one of the great beauties of it, right? Because, you know, the, the modern scientific revolution, I mean, it had roots in in early modern Europe, but and it was Western science for a while, and I think that's kind of usable as a historical term. But since then, it's expanded across the world, and now the science that we use, you know, if you go into a hospital, uh, you know, the science, the medicine they're going to be using in Beijing is the same as the medicine they're going to be using in London or in Sydney or in Brazil, and it's accessible yep. to everybody. Yep. Um, can I, I? I finished reading a book recently by the. Uh, computer scientist uh, Judea Pearl and he the book's called the book of why this is a he's written a whole lot of technical papers but this particular book is a so-called popular version it's it's actually quite mathematical in places and 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 I struggled with that to some extent I have to be honest but uh, I thought it it contained uh, all sorts of really interesting ideas about where we should be what we should be trying to achieve with science and that is to distinguish between cause and correlation right so in other words we we want to try and establish the the mechanistic basis for why things happen not just that they happen because it's like um i mean the example he gives is you know the cock crows just before dawn each morning do we think that that rooster crowing um is what makes the sun rise well nobody actually believes that but the example he gave was in, in relation to the use of vitamin c to prevent scurvy it was known since the 18th century by by british uh, sailors that if you had uh citrus uh you wouldn't get scurvy which of, of course is a, is a major problem and killed thousands and thousands of people yeah 
And so they started using limes and they start in the beginning, though, as you using Valencia, uh, sorry, lemons, Valencia lemons from Spain, which were very good and contained lots of vitamin C. Then for reasons of cost, they switched to using limes from the West Indies, which didn't contain as much vitamin C, but still stop you getting scurvy. But but then people thought, realized that uh, people who ate fresh meat didn't get scurvy either. And of course, there are vitamins in, in meat as well. And then they thought, well, that's great. So we can um, we can preserve meat mm -hmm. and uh, this will be great. Uh, because th th then we won't get scurvy. And then the people who are eating the preserved meat did get scurvy. So the theory was then, well, there must have been, the meat can't have been properly preserved. It must have spoiled or something like that. And it wasn't until the 20th century that people figured out, you know, on the Scott expedition, several of them got scurvy, and I think a couple of them died of it. And this is just ridiculous when they actually knew that taking citrus prevented it it's just that they didn't understand the mechanism and it wasn't until yeah. the discovery of vitamin c that people realized that it was that in citrus that what caused it and so this is a good example of you can actually know that something works but unless you know why it works yeah. You can go down blind, and in this case, very tragic alleys. And it's, I think it's important also, that's a great story, and I hope you tell that story to students, or I hope they're told that story in history of science courses, because it's a good example of how I think we want to have sort of knowledge-rich curricula and tell students, you know, what everybody has discovered in the past. Otherwise, we'd be asking them to basically recapitulate the whole history of science. But we also want them to have some awareness of how that knowledge is arrived at. So... Um, I think a couple of years ago now, um, Jonathan Haidt, who was the co-founder of the Heterodox Academy, which is an organization devoted to sort of viewpoint diversity in, in the universities, um, he published an article saying that the, arguing that the, the telos, the point, the purpose of universities should not be activism or social justice or any idea like that or Christianity, which, you know, or religion, which we may like or dislike, but it, that's not the point of the university. The point of the university for Jonathan Haidt should be the truth. And then I thought very interestingly, um, a few months later, this graduate student called Oliver Trialdi published a, a, a response in which he said, no, actually, this is just a sort of slight, a subtle tweak on what Haidt argued, but he was arguing that the point of the university should be conceived of as knowledge. Why? Because knowledge is kind of truth plus. Knowledge is uh, conventionally defined in philosophy as, or for a long time it was, justified true belief. So it doesn't, uh, doesn't have to just be true belief. It also has to be justified in a certain way. And I think it's really important to show students that there's, there are ways in which knowledge becomes justified. And for me, uh, I always kind of balk a little bit at the, the, the term knowledge being applied too widely mm -hmm. because I think it should be really um, reserved for situations where we're using these sort of time-honored practices that we know are, are actually going to allow us to arrive at the truth. Yep. Well, this, I mean, this speaks to what you were saying before about the Royal Society definition of Mātauranga Māori. Because Mātauranga Māori is defined as Māori knowledge, but that includes, you know, um, whakapapa, you know, right back to Ranganui and Papatuanuku. So, so uh, and, and all of the Puriko that, 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 that come with that, down through Tāne and Māori and so on. Yeah. And you can see a similar lineage in the Bible tracing Jesus back to Adam. There's a there's a difference though, isn't there, between a, a mythological belief which carries a lot of meaning 
And I think meaning needs to be distinguished from knowledge because I think there are a lot of things that carry meaning for human beings very profoundly which wouldn't stand up to rigorous empirical testing nonetheless. Mehdi Roberts published a paper in 2012 called Mind Maps of the Maori, which came up with a, 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 a sort of an additional way of explaining the need for these purako, and that's that's stories. It's, so this is to do with the whakapapa directly. And that is that, of course, Maori didn't have a written language. So they needed to, they needed, all of, all of this had to be transmitted orally. And it's much easier to remember a story than, for example, something that looks like a family tree. Yeah. If you can remember it in terms of the relationship of ancestors and descendants, in terms of a story, it's it flows, and yeah. so and so it, that that greatly aids oral transmission. I think so. That's another sense in which that works. Well, um, we're just about out of time, un- unfortunately. It's a fascinating conversation, and I think we could go on for hours, but we'd be told off if we did. Uh, <laughs> so, it, just to finish off, Kendall, is there anything you'd like to say to the? the kind of higher authorities at Auckland University about how they ought to be looking at science in relation to other knowledge systems? I think we need to really look carefully at what what different people are trying to achieve in modifying curricula in various ways and ensure that we're using best practice in terms of how we teach and what we teach if the outcome is we want to produce the best scientists we can. And to the people who are listening to this podcast, um, if you think that at times we've strayed into sort of fairly abstract and theoretical or ideological uh, uh, landscapes, then I totally agree with you. I, I mean, until a couple of years ago, I had never had to deal with anything like this. <laughs> but it, it, if I'm really all I'm trying to do is is keep doing what I've been trying to do for 30 years, which is teach and practice science to the best of my ability. Yes, well, if there's one opportunity that is afforded by situations like this, I think it is that it compels us to think through our positions from first principles. And so to that extent, I think it's uh, these are conversations well worth having. And thank you very much for joining us today, Kendall, on, on the New Zealand Initiative podcast. Pleasure. Thanks. Thanks.